Politics Uncensored with Ali Milani on Fubar Radio. Good evening, everybody, and I hope you've all enjoyed uh, your Christmas break. I'm Ali Milani. Welcome to Politics Uncensored. Last few weeks, we've been looking back at some of my favorite interviews from 2023 as we approach the end of the year, and I'm going to be continuing that this week. Um, every week, I'm, showed by, I'm joined by different guests on this show, and, the bi- and we discuss the biggest political stories of the week. In June, Labour MP for Norwich South, Clive Lewis, gave us his thoughts on that week's news. Really, really interesting. Uh, Clive Lewis uh, ran for leader and is being tipped uh, as uh, a potential future uh, leadership candidate in the Labour Party. So it's really worth um, getting his sort of views and slant uh, on the politics of the day. Have a listen to that interview back in June this year. Clive, I think we've got you back now. Good. Can you hear me now? I can hear you excellently. That Sorry about good. that. <laughs> That's I brilliant. I don't know if you could hear me, but basically we're talking about this Onward report that is finding that as people are getting older, they are not becoming more conservative, as had mm. been the case with previous generations. What's your initial reaction to that? Well, I suppose it's... It, I mean, if you're a young person listening to this show, then it probably doesn't come as too much of a surprise, given that this is uh, a, a, the Conservative Party has literally overseen the decimation of public services. It's failed to act on the climate crisis. It suppressed people's ability to even protest or take action for higher pay uh, in terms of anti-trade union legislation. Um, and, you know, we know that the baby boomers now, the older generation, have, have snaffled far more of, of public wealth, uh, of GDP, than um, people who are perhaps under under 40, under 30. So, you know, in terms of the cost of living crisis, it's being disproportionately, um, impact, bird being, but the burden is disproportionately on uh, a younger generation. And, and I guess they're voting with their feet. So it doesn't come as a complete surprise and a complete shock. Where they end up, though, I think is probably as interesting. And I think with the fragmentation of kind of centre and left parties across Western democracies, but particularly here in the UK with our first past the post system, that means that the Conservatives will still continue to get in more often than not, um, even with a declining share of the vote. Yeah, so one of the things I'm curious about is whether this is actually an existential crisis for the Tories. I mean, unfortunately, the, our, our, our really outdated um, uh, democracy means that you're right, they probably will survive. But they tend to, to do this thing where they say, you know, this is just a woke generation um, and uh, that... The reason that the conservatives aren't maybe connecting with younger people is because wokeness is 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 running rampant. The actual report from a right wing think tank is saying the things that millennials top five issues that millennials care about are the economy, the NHS, the environment, housing uh, and issues, uh, taxation and, and, and equality. And actually, what I found most interesting about the report is that it's actually saying that millennials tend to be more left-wing economically they think equality should be prioritized over economic growth and a person's position as society is due to factors outside factors rather than individual effort so it's no surprise is it that while the conservative party have gone on this far-right rampage where they're talking you know attacking trans people attacking migrants attacking refugees while we have nowhere to live no in a cost of living crisis it's no surprise that young people are leaving the party no no, it isn't. It isn't a surprise. But I mean, if you look, if you take the longer view of history, I mean, they are the most successful political political party in the Western world, with good reason. Um, they can morph and change. Um, they're obviously a party of political power, of established power. That's really clear if you look at their history over the last four hundred years. 
but they're also a party that is able to adapt very effectively. Uh, they morph. You know, the Conservative Party that we have now isn't the same Conservative Party that you had, say, in the 1970s, and it's not the same party you had in the pre-war period. You know, so you know, this is the party that is that is that um, they are masters of being able to adapt and change mm -hmm. and to stay in power. So I don't think you can write them off. I think you'd be stupid to. And, you know, they would always look out for their class interest and they're very good at doing that. Um, but can they bring, you know, they, they they are an alliance of different interests and can they bring young people back into the fold? It's really interesting that you called uh, an economy with more equality left wing. Um, that's not always been the case. Yeah. Um, you know, in the immediate post-war period, I would have I would have said that to varying degrees, both um, of the main two main political parties in this country would have agreed that the public sphere, the public realm, public services, um, caps on um, how much money you know companies could make, limits on that. Um, mm -hmm. th these were things that were commonly accepted. Uh, I don't think they're necessarily left wing, but what we have at the moment is a is a is a conservative party that is addicted to a 60 year old creed um it's almost a cult yeah. of thatcherism a cult of free markets when they have now been comprehensively proven not to work if you don't believe me go and look at adult social care as an example look at water look at rail these have failed as privatizations of them that the market knows best look at the climate crisis that is uh, in part a failure of free market ideology so I think this understand this no this notion that these are left wing sentiments is wrong. And I think you should watch out for the Conservative Party. They can merge, they can change, they can shape shift. And and mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if that process is going to take place. Which way they go, whether they go down a right wing rabbit hole of Bliss Trust, Resmog, um, and others, or whether they adapt to something uh something different um is is up for debate. Yeah. This uh, is yeah. this Clive, this is what I'm interested in. I, I think your analysis is spot on. My 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 question is uh, you're right in that they're highly adaptive. They are a party of established power. But something maybe it's uh, my young naivety, but something seems different at least in my lifetime. They seem to have been hijacked by uh, the Jacob Rees-Mogg, Nadine Doris sort of wing of the party. And we saw that in the very fact that Liz Truss won such a big majority over Rishi Sunak and he only became prime minister after she, after she collapsed. Do you think they are capable of, I mean, you're, you're seeing conservative colleagues day to day, are they capable of uh, sort of rebranding, of adapting to meet some of these issues? Or are they now hijacked by a, by a dogmatic far-right section of the party i think it, well i think some of the, i think yes they are effectively and and they're held together by the first post to post voting system and we'll see who comes out on top i would say the people that you've mentioned the dean dorries uh Rees-Mogg, um and others on the right of politics richard tice and others the, these are the, the, there's a reason which um stuart hall who was a kind of a, an academic um cultural theorist kind of came out with this expression, which was that culture eats policy for breakfast. And what you're seeing with that part of the Tory of the Conservative Party is this reaction against a changing world, a world where a younger generation are more liberal on everything from mm -hmm. trans to race, to how society should be created, who should have wealth, who shouldn't, how we should uh, construct ourselves as a society. And that, those are cultural issues. But they're locked into this belief that, that basically established itself probably in the late 19th century, the height of, of imperialism, which is a kind of view of what 
the world should look like. It is a world dominated by white, wealthy men. And they kind of packaged that up and exported it to the rest of the empire. And they've held on to that. And for the last kind of 80 years, they've been fighting a rearguard action against a modern changing world. And what you're seeing at the moment is a kind of backlash against this changing world, whether it's on trans issues, whether it's on um, Black Lives Matters, kind of critical race mm -hmm. theory, whatever it is. It's this hatred yeah. of the fact that they feel that they're losing control, that they're losing, and I use this expression purposefully, the whip hand uh, in how uh, our culture and how it moves forward. Culture is really interesting because culture is the lens through which you see the world. It's through how you understand the yeah. world, how you understand the economy, how you understand policies. So they are right to want to fight it, I think, but I think they're increasingly in a minority, which is why they're fighting so viciously. But it's also a, a, a toxic uh, view of culture, a toxic view of the world, one that I think increasingly people can see through. Yeah. But they have a lot of allies on their side. They have a right-wing media, and they have a lot of people who don't want to engage in this uh, in this battle for ideas, for culture. Uh, and that means that they get to dominate the field. But I think those people are culture warriors, but it's a culture from the 19th century. And I think it's one that should be, hopefully, mm -hmm. consigned to the dustbin of history. But I think that's why they are at odds with perhaps other parts of their party who are perhaps more pragmatic and more and look more at their economic interests and accept yeah. that the world is a changing place. Yeah, I that's mean, just my, that's just one take on it. Sure. You know, I, you know. So the, the, the other point is, I mean, that's the conservatives element. And I think we could talk all day about where they are and, uh, and, and how they're going to try and fight out of it and whether they'll be able to adapt. But for me, there is a unique opportunity here for a party, a progressive party, a party on the left. The terms in British politics is difficult to use, but a Labour Party, for example, to talk about issues like the environment, like housing, like progressive taxation and other things. Because when I'm looking at this report, which is by a right wing think tank, it says everyone from 18 to, to, to near 40s, their top five issues include the environment and you know, this is an issue that clearly didn't make it into Rishi Sunak's top five priorities that he released. But you're, you are the co-chair of the APPG on the Green New Deal, which believes that climate change is fueled by a broken economy. And you've called for radical reform to social and economic and political model to deal with our climate crisis. Is there not a really big opportunity here for a progressive Labour Party to make the argument that clearly the voters want to hear about on the issue of the environment? So yes, there is. And, and I must give my party credit. It has addressed many of those issues. So the £28 billion pound a year yes. um, from yeah. Labour Party on investment in 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 those green, in that green sector, in that green transformational plan. It's it's a start. It's not mm -hmm. enough, but it's a start. And it's better than it's coming from any other political party, as far as I know, perhaps with the exception of uh, the Green Party. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's but I mean, just, not, but they're obviously with yeah. one MP, that's not going to happen. Sure. To, but Clive, I, I guess what, well, I guess what I'm talking about, sorry to interrupt you, but I guess what I'm talking about is I, I agree the policy issues are there. And I was, I was really happy at party conference when I saw some of those things announced. But it can be central to the narrative of the kind of country we want to build, the kind of government we want to be. Yes. I think that opportunity so, is there. I, yeah, I'm going to come on to that. Okay. So I, I think the problem we have at the moment, and I, I often feel like I fixate about this, but I think it, Whilst it isn't a panacea, what we have at the moment is a, a political voting system. And this will explain, I think, why the Labour Party is in the quandary it's in, where it can't talk about those things. So, you know, if you speak to most people in this country, they probably wouldn't put um, stopping desperate human beings uh, crossing the channel or showing or having a humane asylum system as their top priority. But if you listened 
to the political class, if you listen to the newspapers, it is. Most people are concerned about the fact, will they be able to get their cancer treated in time? Will their elderly parents be looked after properly? Will they be able to keep their energy, uh, their lights on and put food on the table? That is what most people's concerns are. And yes, they're concerned about the NHS and they're concerned about the climate. What this government is doing is looking at symptoms of those bigger, of those bigger issues. But what First Past the Post does, it basically, whether it's Mondeo Man, Worcester Woman or Red Wall Voter, it takes a caricature of a group of swing voters, about a million people in a certain number of key swing seats that happen under First Past the Post. And with the use of uh, mainstream media, uh, they basically tell these people, these are what the political issues are. And they're the political issues which favour frankly, um, uh, the, the, the ruling elite, the political establishment, whoever you want to call them, the Conservative Party in this case, and what their interests are. And it allows you to manipulate the political talking points mm-hmm. uh, and what is considered politically allowable within that. And, and the result of that means that all of the two, the two main political parties in particular, who are the two winners from first past the post, have to have message discipline, which is, well, this is the issue yeah. that we have to talk about. Therefore, these are the issues, the narrative that we will focus on, and we will discipline our party to do that. And that's the that's the tyranny of first past the post. And actually, all those other issues you've mentioned, Ali, yeah. get pushed to the sidelines uh, in so many yeah. ways. And so actually, I think... Clive, I, I, I've... According to who they want, may I felt matter than were counted, then I think you'd see political preferences and what people actually want yeah. politicians to be talking about and to have that narrative would be far more effective and far more kind of connected in to where people are. And that just doesn't happen at the moment. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I, I've, I've felt that tyranny desperately in an election campaign when I knew the issues, not just the issues, but the solution to the issues was so broad and required so bravery, but was continuously told we had to stick to one or two topics yes. because, you know, that's what the, the system had dictated uh, yeah. the election would be about. Um, and I want to lastly talk about uh, talk about this with you, and I hope you don't mind, is, is an issue of bravery. Um, I'm going to maintain that I'm still young. Uh, you're allowed to disagree. But <laughs> one of the issues that, you know, when I'm talking to friends, colleagues, um, uh, around politics, one of the things that our age group is desperately looking for is a little bit of political courage. Anyone can respond to a focus group, can regurgitate what they're told in a focus group. But what we want is our politicians to have the bravery, the courage to to address some of these issues in the way that they deserve. Things like Black Lives Matter, that's why they've been so so prominent. You have launched a campaign calling on Rishi Sunak to enter negotiations with Caribbean leaders on paying reparations for Britain's role in slavery. Now, that's an it takes an incredible amount of courage to talk about this issue because we know the way that the some of the mainstream media and some of mainstream politics reacts to this. Can you talk to us a little bit about this campaign, but also, you know, what caused you to bring this up and whether you think that your colleagues and our politics in general just needs a little bit more courage to talk about issues that may not be what is focus grouped as the top five issues? Yeah, uh, and uh, so, uh, so thank you for saying that because it is an issue that <laughs> really um, makes my timeline very pleasant on social media. I can only imagine. imagine. Um, and it's not something you enter into lightly. Well, first of all, I, I have Caribbean heritage. I'm, I'm half Grenadian. So that gives me a kind of, I suppose, added incentive to speak up on this. Um, it, it kind of, it's something that I've been speaking. I'm, I'm uh, the chair of the British Caribbean Association and uh, uh, Lord Boateng, Paul Boateng, who you may recall worked under Tony Blair, gave a really fantastic speech about the challenge and the need for voices inside Parliament to speak up about reparations. And it really, it really, it, it hit a nerve. 
mm-hmm. then a little while later, just to kind of background, a little while later, the Trevelyan family um, discovered through the uh, University College London archives on slavery that the, of the hundreds of billions of pounds of today's money that was paid to the slave owners um, and not the slaves, that the abolition of slavery, um, that they profited very handsomely from that. So they went there to apologize and to set up a trust fund um, for people in, the, in in Grenada. And they worked with CARICOM, which is a kind of economic organization of different Caribbean islands um, to do that. And uh, and I, I gave a speech in Parliament and I connected and reached out to them and we're now busy working on a campaign. But the reason I think that came very, became very clear to me, if you look at the Caribbean, the Caribbean has been left in a dire state. It is one of the most, it's one of the most impoverished parts of the world and the least prepared for the climate crisis that's heading our way in mm-hmm. terms of food security, energy access and rising sea levels and all the storms and hurricanes that we know are going to devastate those islands in the years to come. Uh, and yet, at the same time, the kind of irony, the evil irony, if you want, is that they, over 400 years, were ruthlessly, um, you know, there was genocides, there was mass murder, um, and they, they, this, this country and other European countries brutally extracted from those, from those people and those countries vast wealth that they invested in their industrial revolution. And, you know, that racist ideology that was developed to justify that is the structural racism that we see all around us, that we see internationally and we see nationally. And mm-hmm. I think this country is a, a, it's a it's a wonderful country, but I think it as countries, we often tell ourselves stories and good history is about constantly going back to those stories and reappraising them. And it, I think this country after Brexit and, and it's kind of post-imperial period, it needs a period of catharsis. It needs a period of understanding its history. And the, yeah. the history we currently tell ourselves is that uh, we gave up our empire um uh after we beat these really nasty nazis uh and then we created this really nice world order um in which everyone kind of holds hands and sings kumbaya and everything's nice uh, and we're kind of we're, we're the good guys you know this is a great country but it has to live up and face up to some of the darker parts of its history now some people say well we know what that was but the stories that we tell ourselves and the uh, legacy i'm not sure we do know that yeah. period of what we did how we became wealthy how yeah. we became one of the biggest economies in the world and how we still keep many of those countries and left them in poverty particularly the caribbean is not a part of the story that is widely known so part of reparations about having that conversation with countries so that we can move forward we can close that chapter properly but to do that you have to look at the state of the Caribbean at the moment. It is yeah. one of the poorest parts of the world. We've left it that way, despite the fact of what it's contributed to this country. And we owe it a debt. You know, these yeah. people have come over here. You know, they helped build this country. They came over to help rebuild it after the war. And then many of them were deported. And now they can't get compensation through Windrush. I mean, you yeah. can't make this story up. Yeah. And, the, and the islands they've come from are now about to be devastated by the climate crisis caused mainly by the industrialization process. Yeah, and they... Were, they were broken on to build. So yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a, a social and economic justice story, but it's also a story and a campaign which t- tells the story of this country. It's a, in many ways it's about taking on the culture war, but on our terms. And actually, yeah. I think the reason I think it's important is because the vast majority of people in this country, when they understand the story, will understand that there is a, a sense of natural justice and that this country can be you know a brilliant country. Uh, in the future, if it wants to be, if it lives up to its uh, it, its yeah. thing, the obligations that it it has to other parts of the world. Yeah, and I think look, it's it's 
it's one of those things. I agree with you. Look, I I, I think this is an uh, is an amazing country. I love our community here. I love um, being here, and I think it's only a testament to the health of our democracy and us as a country to be able to recognize with clear eyes what we've done, the darker parts of our histories, but also yeah. what we can do now to address them. It's really important that our politics and our politicians and legislators recognize that we're not in moment zero. This isn't the first episode of the series. Um, we're, we're several seasons in and we need to, to take actions to address things. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm particularly enthralled by the way you've intertwined your answer in that this isn't just a foreign policy issue. It's an environmental issue. It's an economic issue. It's a it's a human rights issue. They're all interlinked. Yeah. Um, and if we're going to deal with the climate crisis, we're going to deal with it as one world. We're not going to deal with it as 100%. 200 We countries. can't keep dealing with the symptoms. The yeah. symptoms are war, destabilization, refugees, violence, mm-hmm. um, and the works. And, and you know... There are too many politicians that just that just want to basically talk about, you know, yeah. spending defense reviews, increasing yeah. our ability to deal with the symptoms. And we have to think about yeah. dealing with, you know, the, the causes and tackling those. And that's yeah. poverty, the climate crisis um, and, a ver- and, you know, various other other things that we need to get our head around and create those international institutions that can that can do that. And yeah. if we don't do that, we're going to be forever. Um, we, you can never throw enough resources into tackling the symptoms of those crises you know you can never build enough tanks enough planes enough missiles you're always going you just can't so you need to deal with the symptoms it's like in this country you know a lot of people think about tackling crime and we know what the right wing view is you build more prisons and you give the police more powers well that's certainly one approach and we've been doing it a long time and it hasn't worked they have and the way i would say the way that you try to deal with it you deal with the, the causes and the symptoms which yeah. are, you know, we know that poverty, we know that, you know, um, poor housing, we know that poor jobs, insecurity, we know all of those factors, unequal societies help generate, um, yeah. you know, the, the conditions for more criminality. So, yeah. you know, how do you tackle the root causes rather than simply, you know, giving the police more armaments or more wealth yeah. or more resources, sorry, building more prisons? That's the American system. I don't think it works. And I think actually that's the whole argument behind defund the police. Not necessarily take money away from the police to stop them policing, but to stop arming the police and to stop making that the premier route to tackle these issues. And I think that's right. You know, now we've got a police force that's saying it can't deal with mental health cases. Well, there are lots of of things unpacking that. But actually, you know, maybe we should be putting more money into the causes of that mental health. Yeah, um, th- thank, thank you, Clive. Listen, I, I wish I had more. I had longer with you, but um, <laughs> we, we, we've reached the end. I, I hope we can get you back on. But one of the things is, you know, we're, we're talking about this issue around millennials today, but um, some of your answers in being able to have the bravery to, to deal with some of these key issues that aren't necessarily on the top five um, issues that, that Rishi Sunak or, or even uh, other political parties may talk about is really, really important. And integra- in, intertwining them with things like the environment um, will certainly get uh, millennial ears uh, listening and um, their feet more likely to go towards the ballot box. Thank you so much, Clive, uh, so for joining much. us. That's Clive uh, Lewis. So that was Clive Lewis, uh, MP for Norwich South. Uh, very, very interesting discussion uh, with Clive. We're moving on now. In the week where Lucy Letby was handed 14 whole life orders after med- murdering seven babies, political activist and co-founder of Our Future, 
our choice. Femi Olawale joined me on Week Unwrapped to dissect not only that issue, uh, but also the implications beyond a, a single case. Uh, you will have seen Femi on all sorts uh, of media as well as social media. Uh, I was really looking forward when we had the chance to get him uh, in the studio and do give a listen. Femi, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, we're going to talk about a number of issues and we're going to end on education. But first, um, I want to talk to you a little bit about one of the breaking pieces of news this week. And that's that bosses at Britain, at Britain's biggest company, saw their pay rises, pays, pay packets rise by almost 16% on average last year. As most workers' wages were squeezed by rising prices, the high pay center said the median pay of FTSE 100 chief execs was 3.91 million in 2022, up from 3.38 in 2021. It added that the average earnings of FTSE 100 bosses was 118 times more than a typical UK worker on 33k a year. Critters called the earnings extreme, but some of the firms argued that they were in line with competitors. Now, Femi, cost of living crisis. People can't afford to do their shopping. They can't. They have to pick between heating their house and putting food on their children's plates. And we've got some of the richest in London getting richer. FTSE 100 bosses, chief execs getting on average 16% pay rise. This is a slap in the face of the British public, is it not? Yeah, the, the, this just tells us exactly why we all have to vote. Because often we often think that politics is this thing far removed. It's just old men shouting at each other in in Westminster, but they have the power to change this. The UK is one of the most financially unequal countries in in the West in the Western world. We I think we're fourth most financially unequal in Europe. We have the worst um, regional inequality of, of any large major major economy. And this is what you see. You end up seeing this sort of thing. And the reason why the politics that we currently have allows that to happen is because we have a party in power that literally um, Boris, uh, was it Rishi Sunak last, last summer, about this time last year, bragging during his leadership race about how he defunded deprived urban areas in favor of rich ones like Tunbridge Wells. We have a government that deliberately tries to make sure that the rich get richer. I mean, Liz Truss, the other, um, last year when she was doing her mini budget, she literally said it is fair to give more money to rich people. This is the attitude. This can be changed. We can live a better life. But well, the politicians won't let us, which is why we have to vote. Why do you think there's such a hesitancy within British politics to really go after some of the unequalness in terms of pay packets? I mean, we saw it in 2008. After the 2008 crash, when everyone was suffering, we saw the bankers' bonuses that went out and the outrage from the public. We've now seen with the cost of living crisis a 16% increase when nurses and doctors, um, train drivers, teachers are told to jog on. Um, but there seems to be a consensus in Westminster that in order to govern, we need to bring these big businesses with us and therefore a little bit of a fear to go after these pay packets, whether in rhetoric or policy. There just seems to be a fear. Why do you think that is? It's because we don't have a real democracy. We have, as I said, the, the, the attitude of the Tories is give the rich, make the rich richer. But they only got 44 percent of the vote. The majority of the vote went to parties that were much more towards the left. Labour, Lib Dems, Greens, SNP, that's more than 50% of the vote just there with those parties. And if you do the polling, it said I think it was 63% of the public are in favour of taxing the rich more. That is just the view, that we are a country that believes in taxing the rich to help the poor. But unfortunately, because of our voting system, we end up giving absolute power to a party that believes in the exact opposite, the reverse Robin Hood. And absolute power having not received more than 50% of the vote from the public yeah, as well. It, it's especially, uh, they didn't get 50% of the vote. They got 44%. And now we have a prime minister that wasn't even prime, wasn't even the leader of the party at the time of the last 
selection doing things deliberately to make us poorer yeah and he, even even he even he wasn't um he wasn't voted through i on the tories i think we're exactly on the same page i wonder what you think about uh labor and liberal democrat responses to, to this as well because they seem hesitancy i mean they both want to present themselves as uh the party of business i i guess part of that is around the rhetoric of the economy and safety within the economy making sure that businesses feel safe to invest here to create jobs but there does seem to be a bit of hesitancy from opposition sides as well as it relates to big business Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's largely because essentially there isn't a conservative party anymore. The conservative party, the traditional conservative values that you would think would be conservative, i.e. being sensible with the economy, being prudent, being uh, a lack of intervention into our private lives, that sort of thing. That party doesn't exist within the Tories anymore. They're the same party that flirted with the no-deal Brexit. They trashed the economy with Liz Truss. They're banning protests, the exact opposite of everything that traditional conservatism was supposed to stand for. And so that's mm. why you have the Lib Dems and even Labour now trying to move into that space, trying to reclaim the centre, even centre-right ground, because they know that those voters are right for the picking. And so that's why a, a lot of people who are on the progressive side of politics in the UK feel very much abandoned by this version of mm. Labour because they essentially think, well, we've got your votes in the bag. We can just go and go get some Tory mm. voters. Uh, Do you think that's a problem? Instead. I think it's, to be honest, if Keir Starmer wanted to move more to the right and purely for the purposes of getting the Tories out, I would be okay with it only if he promised to give us a fair voting system afterwards. Because as I said, this, this country, since mm. World War II, almost every single election has voted for parties to the left of the Conservative Party. We are a progressive voting country compared to the government that we keep being given. And so if he actually promised, committed to changing the voting mm. system, we wouldn't have to have a situation where... But he's given no indication of that, has he? I know. That, mm -hmm. That's why it's completely unacceptable that he's moving to the right whilst not promising to any, any real change after that. Ironically enough, as you'll know, I'm a, I'm a Labour Party member. I'm not sure if you are, but I'm a Labour Party member. And the majority of the Labour Party are members are massively in favour of, of electoral reform. In fact, we passed it at the last national conference, but it seems to be mm -hmm. ignored at the top echelon. Yeah, uh, I actually got kicked out of the Labour Party in March 2020 uh, precisely because I said on Twitter... Uh, dear any Lib Dems and Greens who are disappointed that I've joined the Labour Party, please understand that I'm doing this because I know that electoral reform and a fair voting system is the best way to save the country. And if I do achieve that, that means the votes of your parties will actually count in, a, in all future elections. So me joining the Labour Party and getting them to do an electoral pact is the single best thing I could possibly do for your parties as well. And the Labour Party basically said, nah, you know, we can't have you um, supporting other parties at the same time when that's not what I was doing. <laughs> Uh, so I, that I, notion of working together, that notion of equal voting uh, is fundamentally against uh, the leadership of, of this party. And that's yeah, a, I mean, a uh, massive division between leadership and the party right now. I mean, Femi, mate, I'll, I'll be honest with you. A lot of people have been kicked out for a lot less. Um, and just to avoid me getting kicked out, we're going to bridge very quickly past this topic. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I have to be honest with you. I've come on a journey on, on electoral reform. I'm, I mean, I haven't been in politics that long. I kind of got involved when I was 16, 17. But early on, I was kind of fed this narrative that first past the post is... Um, protects us from extremists like the mm -hmm. BNP and others. A lot of that has been debunked, and I've I've now reached a conclusion. I think in the last five years specifically that that our country is no longer a democracy. You can't have a government uh, of one party in thirteen years rule over the country without having achieved fifty percent of the vote. It's ludicrous, no? Exactly. Uh, I think. And the thing is, it's and there are people all across the country, by the way, that I door knock on or, or engage with or, or come on the show who say, listen, my vote literally means nothing. 
Like when mm-hmm. I go to the boat, if you, if you're in a safe seat, you you know it's not that it doesn't mean anything. Obviously, there's there's huge uh, moral value to it. There's the symbolic value to it. But as it pertains to electoral math, my mm-hmm. vote isn't going to make a difference. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, people often when when you when you say we need to change the voting system, people accuse you of trying to rig things in favor of labor. But no, it's not fair regardless of who wins. Because if a party that only only a minority of people have voted for always gets a majority of the seats in Parliament, that means that a party that a minority voted for can do what any anything they want, pass any laws they want, without having mm-hmm. to even talk to the parties that the rest of the people voted for, i.e. the majority, yeah. which means the majority of votes literally mean nothing. But it's, it's also... I don't, any effect I, from the democratic process. I don't even think it's just electoral math, if I'm honest with you. I think it also helps political discussion. One of the things mm-hmm. I was shocked at when I when I... When I lost to Boris and I went to the States and I kind of had this, maybe this British thing of having always grown up here and, and loving the country of, of thinking our democracy was better. But I actually found the political discourse in America was better. It was healthier. Um, and even they have their electoral problems with the uh, electoral college and other things. But I don't think it's just a, an electoral math issue or an issue of who, who wins and loses the election. But a, a fairer, more democratic process would surely help healthy democratic debate. Oh yeah, I mean that's 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 one of the biggest problems because if you know that in your constituency only one MP can win, only one party can win, you can't have a situation where it's proportional representation, where by um, you get the votes, the seats get split up based on the percentage of the votes that you get. If only one party can win, then anybody anybody with an even slightly different point of view to you is an existential threat to your beliefs. And so you, you're automatically talking to the per- other person as if they're your enemy rather than somebody you can find some common ground with. This proportional, yeah. this first-past-the-post system that we have is designed to make us all at each other's throats. Yeah, and I think um, nothing is better represented of that by the physical state of parliament where they're sat directly opposite each other mm-hmm. almost in a confrontational method. I, I wrote a paper at this book in university. I'm sure if I read it back now, it would suck. But but the, the idea was that, that uh, our democracy is built for confrontation. Okay, we're going to move on to the next story. And it's one that you're you're familiar with. I, I, I had a quick look at um, your Twitter feed. And I watched one of your YouTube videos about this um, really, really sad, tragic case. And that is the case uh, of Lucy Letby. Uh, now, for those who don't know, Lucy Letby was a suspended nurse found guilty of murdering seven babies and attempting to murder a further six others between june 2015 and june 2016 you will have seen this all across the news um this week alone the president of the rcn which is the royal college of nurses has said that lucy letby may have been stopped sooner if she wasn't white and there's a there's a big debate going on and i think um it's 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 been a little bit toxic online uh, around whether lucy letby was allowed to get as far as she did because of the color of her skin because she was a white nurse um and i think the the institutional racism that exists within the healthcare system is one um, that isn't really up for debate. The data is there, as you have highlighted on your YouTube channel. Um, can you tell us a little bit, expand a little bit about your thoughts on this and whether you agree with the president of the RCN, which who is saying that Lucy Letby may have been stopped sooner if she wasn't white? So we have to, we're starting with a, a major, major tragedy here, which was allowed to happen because complaints and concerns were, were raised against Lucy, Lucy Letby. There, there were warnings that were made. And those were essentially ignored by the authorities. And instead of actually punishing her and and making sure that she wasn't able to do what she did, they actually made the doctors who raised the alarm apologize to her. Now, that is, by definition, something, a massive professional failure. And so the question is, what allowed that to happen? 
and we have to be objective here. When I made this point on, on Twitter or on, on YouTube, I had a lot of people that were angry with me that how dare you bring race into this. But it is a matter of fact that the um, the nursing and midwifery council, which basically decides if people get to keep being nurses, they that they've done studies on this that show that if you are um, there are several stages. You have to go through the complaint process. Then there's a screening process. There's an investigation process. And then you find out the outcome. Now, um, according to them, uh, you have more people from ethnic minorities who are complained against. But then. And at the next stage, at the screening stage, where they haven't actually done the full investigation yet, white nurses are more likely to be found innocent, and therefore the, invest the whole thing gets closed, i.e. they're um, deemed innocent. After that, at the next stage, once the investigation is concluded, ethnic minority nurses, black nurses especially, are more likely to be found innocent than white nurses. And white nurses at the end of the process are more likely to be struck off, which means that it is easier to um, essentially strike off a black nurse than a white nurse, and essentially the system them protects white nurses disproportionately more than other people mm -hmm. so you have to ask yourself if that is the thinking that is going to the people that are making these decisions then yeah. doesn't that mean that it makes it more likely that a white nurse that is doing something wrong is less likely to be sanctioned for it yeah i think i think where the criticism has come is that we, we can discuss the institutional racism that exists within nursing and within uh, the the nhs and healthcare in general in the uk i think where people have been uncomfortable is actually directly linking it to a single case as you started your um your response to my question you mentioned very rightly there's a huge tragedy we've had seven babies murdered a further an attempted murder on a further six um in a period of just one year and i think where the criticism has been is listen we can all agree that the institution i don't you know this isn't a, one of those shows where we put facts up for debate on the show, right? Fact is a fact. It's not up for debate. Um, you can't have an, a differing opinion on, on tangible fact. And I think the research is, is absolutely inconclusive uh, on institutional racism in these sectors. Then the criticism has been, is it inappropriate when seven families have lost their children to link this directly to racism when there isn't any direct evidence to suggest that fact? So we're looking for answers. We're trying to figure out how to avoid this happening again. And I find that it's similar to when you have a mass shooting in America, people immediately go to gun control. We need to control the guns. And then you'll have the pushback from people saying, oh, but we've had a tragedy now. We can't be talking about politics. No, but the difference, I mean, listen, Femi, the difference with guns is that when, when there's a school shooting that happens in America, that is the direct variable is the gun. Right. We don't have any evidence that the direct variable of Lucy Letby being allowed to do this is race. There's very different we things. Don't, we, we, we don't have any evidence. We don't have any evidence to prove that it definitely was the case in this case. Whereas we're with, whereas with guns, it's very clear. Yeah, obviously. But what we're trying to do is make sure that we remove as many barriers as we can see that um, that prevent guilty nurses from being sanctioned and stopped. And given that we can see that there is one that we have lots of evidence for, if we actually care about those babies, we should be trying to get rid of any evidence that we can see. If you can point to another factor that can that, that would have meant, meant that. Oh, I think we've got some technical issues with Femi there. Um, we're just going to get to try to get him back now. But I think he was he was rounding off his answer um uh, around this and i think what 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 femi was was trying to point to is the fact that listen we we're not suggesting specifically that this is this was an issue that she would have been stopped with rape uh, with with as a result of race but i mean the president of the rcn has said that 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 they do believe that lucy levy would have, may have been stopped sooner 
uh, if she wasn't white. But I think what Femi, uh, if I'm not uh, misinterpreting his answer, was saying that there there are multiple variables. But if one of them is race, why wouldn't we um, talk about that now in order to eliminate it from happening um, in the future? Uh, the next story, and hopefully we're gonna we're gonna try and get Femi back. But um, the next story is surrounding the the RNC debates last night, so the Republican Party uh, debates. Femi, I've got you back. Um, I think you were just rounding off your answer around, listen, if I'm not misinterpreting it, was saying that, you know, if even if this is one variable, surely if we care about this not happening in the future, we need to address it. Exactly. If you could point to a different option as to how, how what, what part of the system favored Lucy Letby against the doctors who are raising concerns, then mm -hmm. sure, let's go for that as well but we're just pointing out one just in fact i find it to be extremely problematic if when we are giving an, an option as to this might have been responsible for um the, the, the baby the death of these babies you're mm -hmm. then saying no, no 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 we have to protect institutional racism yeah that's, it's, and i i, that's I yeah i think where you're right is that this this isn't a case of 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 uh of a nurse you know sort of abusing her position and killing one child there has clearly been an institutional failure here um, as it pertains to um, the trust and the NHS and the response to that, given that she had, you know, doctors had raised alarm over it. So I think your response is a good one in, in that it's saying this isn't a reaction to a single case, but an institutional failure. And if racism is a part of that institutional failure, how can we not talk about it? How can we not address it? Exactly. I mean, the, the term that we use in, in law is necessary, but not sufficient. As in, just because just, it is necessary to address this element, even if it's not the thing that's going to solve the entire problem, mm -hmm. you have to address the problems that you can see. And this is a clear and glaring problem that we can see. Yeah. Especially when you had BBC journalists literally saying, this is not what a um, serial baby killer should look like. Yeah, and that statement certainly wouldn't have been said if Lucy Letby had been a black nurse. I think that is, uh, again indisputable um lastly last story um we've we've gone a little bit over but uh, you know i think we've had a really really good discussion and i've enjoyed having you on is on the theme of the show this week which is education so sakir starmer has claimed he would be unable to go to university if we, he were a school leaver now raising the prospect that labor will announce plans to help students with the cost of living crisis the labor leader said the economic climate and soaring prices would have stopped my dream cold in its tracks if he wanted to study law today his comments suggest the party could soon announce policies to help students with rising rent and other costs if he becomes prime minister now for context of people um when Keir Starmer went to university higher education was free um and it the tuition fees was brought about um starting with um Tony Blair's government but really ramped up by the coalition government who tripled tuition fees uh so Keir Starmer studied law Femi I believe you studied law but you yeah. paid very different prices for them yeah, it was it was still three k when 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 I was doing it. Three um, k more than he that paid. My brother had to pay um, is slightly more than that. And so, um, do you? But yeah, how you know if we have a combination of things from tuition fees to the maintenance grants turning into loans to the cost of living crisis to the bursaries for nurses, for example, that have been scrapped, how prohibitive is our education system becoming? And are, do you worry? that stories like yours, like mine, might not be possible in the future, maybe even Keir Starmer's, for people not being able to afford to, to, to get their higher education degree? I think, it's, I think it starts right, right from the bottom. I think, I think the fact that we need to have um, more, more funding to deal with the fact that the, the massive attainment gap between working class kids and private school kids. I mean, we have, a, we have 
we have the the Tories literally using an algorithm that gave the best grades to, to private school kids during the during the pandemic, and they, ha they had to reverse that right at the end. We've recently seen that with the recent uh, A level and GCSE grades, the gap between rich and poor has only gotten wider. In fact, their education czar, their edu their advisor for the for the government as to how to help the working class kids catch up after the pandemic, he actually quit because the Tories refused to provide enough money. So we need to focus on this because because it, it is going to be a massive dent on social mobility. If we're, if education stops being a way to to move move your, move your way up, mm -hmm. and so I think that's that's one of the major things that we need to be focusing on. We spoke earlier about the sort of slap in the face, and I I always thought that this was a slap in the face. We spoke about it when it comes to bankers and and FTSE one hundred bosses, but I always thought it's it's a bit of a slap in the face when politicians who literally enjoyed a free education tell the next generation that it's no longer affordable. That that is in of itself spitting in the face of the next generation for me. No. Oh, a hundred percent. Pulling up, pulling up the ladder is basically the way that this government likes to roll. I mean, we have um, what they've done. They essentially created their lives in an economy that worked for them, and they've done everything they can to trash it. And we're having, I mean, we, we've what we've gone through uh, as a, as millennials and Gen Zs in the last ten years alone has been insane. Yeah. And they went through none of this, and they've made our lives worse before yeah. they then. Yeah, I mean, me and you, me, me and you are, are are similar ages. I think you're just a little bit older than me. But um, I, I think you know, our generation went through the 2008 crash, the housing crisis, tuition fees being trebled, maintenance grants being gotten rid of, Brexit on top of cost of living crisis and pandemic. How much more can they hit us with? And Russia, uh, Russia as well. It's, yeah, it has been, and it's it's the I think the, the thing that's painful is, is if things were bad, that is one thing. But if you have a government that is deliberately hurting us, that makes it so much worse. And, and I mean both the Tories and Labour in the sense that in 2019, the government's um, experts re released the documents that showed that no matter what version of Brexit they negotiated, it would make people poor. Which means that by pursuing Brexit, they were deliberately making everybody in this country poor after eight years of austerity, which is insane. And the fact that it's been allowed to do policies that you know that all your experts say is going to hurt people that needs to be fixed which is why for me um brexit is just a symbol of uh, it's like the testing testing knob for how how bad our politics mm -hmm. is are politicians willing to just deliberately hurt us yeah the fact that keir starmer is refusing to stand against it that's a major problem as well it is and we're going to be staying on this topic um of education next as we have tom allingham communications director at save the student and an expert on student finance joining us um we've we've just had the week unwrapped with uh, our guest femi olawale activist writer and co-founder of our future our choice femi thank you so much for joining us femi olawale there uh, media voice political activist uh, and co-founder of our future our voice uh, moving on to the next uh, of our best bits, it was Labour Party conference in October, and one of the most memorable moments from the week was when Sakir Stama being glitter-bombed by activist Yaz Ashmawi. Uh, we spoke exclusively to Yaz about the event uh, and whether he had any regrets over his actions. We were the very first to speak to him. I think over 200 media articles followed our interview. So give a listen uh, and see if you can spot my surprise uh, in relation to some of his responses to the questions. Yes, thank you for, so much for joining us. Just tell me about the last 24 hours or 48 hours. Uh, um, well, thanks for having me on here. Yeah, I mean, it was obviously a, a quite an intense experience. I, uh, I'd love to talk about like, why why i did it yeah we're gonna we're gonna do lots of that i just want to get your own personal stuff don't worry i've given plenty of time to on <laughs> on the issue first of all your background's on point if any if the branding was off we now know you're definitely the guy who did it 
Um, I just wanted to know the personal experience. What happened? How did you get there? And what happened in the immediacy afterwards? I think a lot of people have heard you got arrested, but haven't heard what's happened since. Well, the thing is, I put my hand on his arm, didn't I? And I touched him. Yeah. And I think that he, you know, politicians, they get a lot of death threats and they have a need to feel safe. And I sort of compromised that in that moment by touching him. So anyway, I was, I was dragged off. I got onto the stage because everyone was applauding. And so I hopped onto some chairs and hopped onto the stage. Um, I was kept in a cell for about 22 hours. I know he was, um, he was concerned. He was going to write a letter to the police about assault. So I've, uh, I guess I've sort of owned up to that in a way. I kind of. Do you regret that? Because what I was going to ask you about that at the end of the interview, but I guess we'll do it now. Um, safety of politicians is a big thing. I stood for Parliament. I got more death threats than I think anyone else did in that in that series. So jumping up with his wife there, his children probably watching and touching him will have been a hugely scary moment, not just for him, but for every MP watching. Do you regret the action? Do you regret touching him? Where, where are you at now? The thought that like, even for a, for a moment, he felt that he was in danger is horrible to think about. And, you know, I think that it's absolutely fine to pull glitter on someone and, and to go onto the stage. I just think it's the physical contact that, that mm -hmm. crossed the line there. Um, but, you know, I hope that he can understand that the people of this country have a right to contribute to the decisions which will determine whether or not we live or die. And our whole electoral system is not fit to govern, can't mm -hmm. protect us. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm a scientist, I studied physics while, while I was at university and I'm terrified about this crisis in our climate and in nature and we see society falling apart around us and we can't keep reinforcing the systems that have given us here. We've got a, yeah. a, a crisis to fix and a broken political system that can't actually do the job. Yeah, so talk to us about this. So you're a campaigner with People Demand Democracy. I believe People Demand Democracy is a fairly new organization. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that uh, and what drove you to, to doing the protest. I think when you, st I'll be honest, I was in I was in at conference and I heard you sat, I, I, at first I thought it was either, um, it was just stop oil or it must be something like that. But you, you shouted, people demand a people's house. So talk to us a little bit about what that means. People Demand Democracy is, yeah, it's a brand new campaign. It's designed to escalate towards the upcoming election. We've got uh, expertise from some of the most influential nonviolent direct action movements in the last decade, like you've mentioned. And we demand an upgraded form of democracy where ordinary people have a say on the way politicians behave. We need to make them work for us and not for lobbyists and themselves. So a hundred years ago, the suffragettes knew they deserved a voice. They couldn't take no for an answer, could they? They interrupted hustings and, and debates and news events and panel shows and speeches. And I imagine we'll see similar things over the course of this next year. Like wherever there's visibility, ordinary people will demand a platform to present an actual alternative to our broken system. We have a right to say on these decisions in public, the people, you know, we're facing it. The biggest drop in living standards since record began. Two thirds of people believe that politicians are just out for themselves they want a new electoral system only three percent of people think the house of lords should stay as it is and we you know we are, can, if i can talk about the science for a minute because we are facing an emergency right basic climate science indicates that even if we reach our paris target of two degrees we'll see we'll see stronger storms more extreme seasons coral reefs will be lost billions will struggle to find water 
and, and there was this paper that was just published a few weeks ago that was this big review that looked at the human impact of carbon emissions that found that mainly richer humans will be responsible for killing one billion mainly mm. poorer humans right there is an immediate threat to life there's an urgent need for these far-reaching changes in all aspects of societies and citizens assemblies are the answer they are the intervention that we are looking for everywhere in our politics it's a solution actually on the scale so, of the problem so i guess what you i think what i'm understanding is the problem can be an issue like climate change but the route to fixing it is fixing our democracy and the way do we fix our democracy is this citizens assembly we've previously i think we had james robertson on the show previously who has advocated very similar things the talks around um a, a democratic lottery system a people's house yeah, um, that's what it is. Yeah. and is this a replacement of the house of lords it is a, is it its own separate thing is it a replacement for the house of commons it, i don't think it's a replacement for the house of commons there's there's different forms it can take the sortition foundation who are the biggest experts in the country when it comes to deliberative democracy and citizens assemblies they've run the vast majority of them are proposing it replaces the house of lords i think there's a strong case that we need to update our politics in that way but but you know what's really important to understand about this vision for a house of citizens is that Fundamentally, what it does is it realigns power in society. It empowers people to set the agenda and by deciding on topics for citizens' assemblies on issues, can keep politicians in check by holding these independent public inquiries. And it basically gives this house a say on the laws that politicians enact and write and write in that and, and vote on in that house. You know, mm -hmm. it, it sort of dismantles us, it frees us from the capture of of interest and, and repairs our relationships right with our communities and with nature it can it can in our economy in our public services in our climate in our politics only normal people brought together given the time the science the the guidance can actually make the right decisions for our country mm -hmm. people are desperate for something different and we need to update politics and, and let people decide and that's the hope really that we can bring a new message a new possibility to yeah. people's minds as, as the next i tell you what yes what i'm hearing from what you're saying and i have to be honest you know i i i, I it's in the context of the just stop oil protest the xr protests um it, it it feels like to me there is an element of a feeling of powerlessness mm. and a frustration with politics not just from you but from a lot of people around the country um and again, forgive me if, I've, if I'm misunderstanding you, but it sounds like there are elements of what happened at the conference speech that you regret, but that need for politics to change, uh, to, to stop the tinkering around the edges and for fundamentally people's voices to be heard, yeah. that's the sort of fire that's burning. Yeah, absolutely, right. And, and, and we are tired of being ignored, right? We can't afford to be ignored when we're facing a catastrophe like, catastrophe like this. And... Mm -hmm. You know, take take something like as basic as proportional representation. This idea of making your votes fairly count that the number of representatives in Parliament actually reflects the proportion of people that want that ideology being represented. Mm -hmm. It's a bare minimum for an electoral system. Yeah. But an eighty percent of your of the Labour membership voted for it, but Starmer has completely ignored the leadership. Doesn't even believe in the democracy of its own party. So how can we trust them to listen to actual the actual public? And that's and that's where a lot of uh, a lot of um, the frustration is coming. And I guess my my final question is, what does what does the next few weeks or months look like for you? Do you think you're going to be charged on this? Um, do you, you know, do you know Me. what the outcome might look like? It does sound like you you regret certain elements of it, right? Do you want to 
yeah i mean look non-violence non-violence is about intervention to prevent harm and mm. it's about accountability and if mr sama felt that he was threatened and i know that he you know he was going to write that 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 statement and listen i'm sure he did look i i saw right. the look on his face Right. I'm sure I would have had the same look on my face. The amount of death threats that are received are, are, are critical. And I think the touching of the hand and the physical element is what yeah. would have been most alarming. Yeah. yeah, and I take responsibility for that. I, you know, I want to take full responsibility to my actions. Do you want to apologize to him on that element? Yeah, absolutely. I'm sorry, sorry for doing that. Um, mm -hmm. I, I just think, you know, that for, for those of you who are watching this, who feel that there is this need for something different, you can participate along with us, right? Join this open call. We have a welcome call on, on this Friday, sorry, mm -hmm. a week on Friday, the 20th of October. Um, PeopleDemandDemocracy.com, you can sign up. And this can be the start of something, yeah. you know? There, there, there can be a different way and we can yeah. all, you know... There and listen, I, 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 I hear you... not involve people yeah, being I, touched, you know what I mean? And I, I hear your regret, but I also, I also hear mm. this frustration at the political system and not just from you from a lot of young people specifically they're just fucked off right that the system that there it feels like what was that film don't look up it feels like a meteor is headed towards the earth and a lot a lot of people are shouting for us to do something and the system just won't let us and it feels like that is what's driving a lot of the actions and it's not an accident that, that all these different interventions, protests, campaigns, direct actions are happening at the same time. There's a feeling of powerlessness in our politics that I think we have to address. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well. Yeah, I'll, I'll let you continue, but thanks for having me on. Thank you so much. And that brings us to the end of this week's show. Uh, join me next week for our final edition of Politics Uncensored, the best bits. Uh, not a final edition of the show, but when we look back uh, on um, the best of 2023, where I will be revisiting my extended interview with former leader of the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn. Thank you so much for joining me, and I'll see you next week. Salams.